This morning's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Well, good morning. I hope that you were all able to enjoy Thanksgiving with family or with friends. And that by God's grace, we uh, would not have anything new to repent of when we set aside time to be thankful, be that uh, an overindulgence of food or in a rush to capitalize on the great deals that Black Friday shopping can provide. It's such a weirdly American phenomena that we immediately follow up a day set aside to be thankful with the hysteria of acquiring new things whether those be things for ourselves or gifts we want to give to others, the post-Thanksgiving Day sales are designed to make it seem like it would be irrational not to buy now and to buy often. This weekend, we introduced our kids to the mid-90s Christmas movie, Jingle All the Way. I actually had forgotten about that movie until I was scrolling through looking for Christmas movies, and I saw the thumbnail for it. And then even then, I remembered only the very base, basics of the storyline. What I, what I found really interesting was just how foreign it now seemed to see the mad rush of shoppers at store entrances. Because online shopping has changed so much for us. It doesn't seem like that long ago that every Black Friday, we would see videos of stampedes that had happened at different stores across the country as people fought pushing and shoving to get near to the nearest deal. It was common for stores to have waiting lines outside, sometimes lasting even for days ahead of time, so that people could be one of the first ones in to get the blockbuster deal that was being promoted. Our kids had no idea that this used to be commonplace. To them, the antics in this movie seemed way overdone. There's another Hollywood stunt of, of being silly and hysterical overdone. But for Lindsay and I, it rang true to what we remember seeing years ago, both on the news and even at times on ourselves and shopping and seeing people push and fight and try to get through. People really did frantically struggle against one another in order to obtain the prize that they sought. Well, as I reflected on our text for this morning, the sight of the people in that movie jockeying against one another for position so they may be in a better place to take hold of what they desired made me think of what it must have been like for the people in the first century when Jesus came to their towns. Because people will practically go to war with one another over trinkets. How much more would they have been motivated by the prospect of being made whole when they were broken? You see, when we remember the events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ, it can be really easy for us to forget just how popular, how successful, and how how welcomed Jesus was during His ministry on earth. The same man that would be crucified alone with only the company of criminals spent most of his earthly ministry surrounded by multitudes of people that were seeking healing, food, and purpose. Throughout the Gospel accounts, we find crowds of people surrounding Jesus, so much so that he actually had to work hard. He had to get up at ungodly hours in the morning in order to find a time to be able to be alone, to get some space, some privacy, so that he could meet with his Father in a quiet hour of prayer. Because people were just that desperate to be near him. 
Because Jesus represented a ray of hope against that bleak backdrop in a land that had previously loaned only darkness and hopelessness. Of course, all of that brings up a few questions. How did a poor carpenter from the oft-despised city of Nazareth in the ill-favored region of Galilee attract so much attention in such great a following? Who made up these crowds of people that were constantly accumulating wherever he roamed? What were these people seeking as they came from near and far to see this wandering preacher? And were these people devoted to him? Or were they devoted to what they believed that he could do for them? These are some of the questions that I think naturally flow from seeing these events. And I want to consider this morning as we look at our text. This morning we're going to look at four main elements from our passage. And in the process, hopefully we'll answer these questions. We're going to focus on the popularity of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then the teachings of Jesus. The theological significance of the healings and the condition of those who followed. Our passage this morning provides a general framework, a general summary of the bulk of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we'll see in weeks to come as we continue on in Matthew, we'll be given glimpses into some of the specifics of what happened as Jesus traveled throughout the land, preaching and healing. We'll get to see examples of what He taught and how he healed. Well, from this point until somewhere in Matthew 16-ish, the ministry of Jesus can be summarized by this passage. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. I'd ask you to join me once more in prayer before we continue. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are eager for your word, eager for the hope of the gospel. Give us a sense of that urgency of these broken and suffering people as they sought out Christ, as they struggled to be able to be near to him. even as we glory that you have given us your spirit and drawn us near. Father, let us not lose sight of the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the power of the words and the healing of our Messiah. Father, may this message of hope not just be so commonplace that it's neglected or forgotten. But may may it be our breath, our food, our medicine, our constant course. Father, keep me from being a distraction. May your word ring clear in the ears of your people. And may you draw your people, to your Son. May you open eyes and open ears. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's first look at the popularity of Jesus as he traveled. The text says that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, Of course, that does not demand that he went to every single possible place in Galilee that he could have gone to. He did not literally cover every square foot of ground. Rather, Matthew is making clear that Jesus traveled broadly enough so that everyone in the land would have had the opportunity to go out and to seek Jesus or to be brought to Jesus, as we'll see in a number of occurrences in the gospel where people were not physically able to go themselves, so they had other people bring them to them. 
as Jesus traveled Galilee, there wasn't anywhere that he avoided. There wasn't any dark corner in this land that the light did not reach. Matthew tells us that as Jesus traveled, the the news about him spread throughout all of Syria, this broader Roman province in the era. Jesus' reputation spread before him, way before him, before his actual travels brought him into any new area. The news about him traveled far and wide, and everywhere he went, crowds traveled to meet him, both from that area and from abroad, as they would hear the news of this great teacher and healer and went out to see him. See, I'm not sure that we can really adequately grasp the overwhelming hype that had to surround somebody in this day and age to gather such a following. Living in the information age, we are used to near-instant saturation of, of news surrounding important people or important events in the world. In fact, the only way to be leading edge in the news today is to be observing it while it happens, to be able to be the first one to be able to comment on it. Of course, that is made possible because almost every one of us carry a high-definition camera in our pocket. We have been groomed and trained that anytime something interesting happens around us, to take out that camera and start to record it. Because if we do not have it on camera, then apparently it didn't really happen. We can even share with things as they are happening around the world in real time. Well, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that people in the past couldn't just turn on their phones and catch up on everything that was going on around the world. Most of human history, they couldn't even watch the evening news to see what had happened that day. They couldn't read about it in the morning paper the next day. For most of human history, the only way you got news about anything that was going on in the world is if you actually talked to somebody who had seen it, or talked to somebody who had talked to somebody who had seen it, or possibly got a letter from somebody that had knowledge of it. And unless you lived right next to somebody, that took time. Often this took a lot of time. Information traveled only as quickly as merchants or travelers going from place to place. So just think about how big of a deal these people must have thought Jesus was, that as he traveled throughout the area, everywhere he went, he found large crowds of people that had already heard about him and that were waiting for him, seeking him out. As his fame spread, so did the people's hope of being freed from sickness, disease, and malady. The fame of this traveling healer would have given hope to many and caused them to go out to Jesus. Hope where there had been only hopelessness and darkness. And as I said before, if they could not physically go themselves, they would try and find others to carry them. Or, as we see in a number of accounts in the Gospel as well, try and send others to bring the healer back to them. Well, the teaching of Jesus would have been of interest to some of the people. And in fact, as we continue on in this Gospel, people would come to recognize that Jesus spoke with an authority that the scribes and the Pharisees did not possess. Yet, it was the prospect of being healed that caused the whole land to flock to Jesus. So even as in the big picture we generally consider that Israel failed to embrace the Messiah, we need to remember that in His early ministry, Jesus did find popular success. Jesus was welcomed with open arms and embraced by the masses, at least for a time. Well, at least what He had to offer was embraced. Remember that it was Jesus' popularity that caused the leaders of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, it's what caused them to oppose Him. They were jealous of His influence over the people. They were jealous of how eager the people were to follow Him. 
They were jealous of how he threatened their positions. Like John, they feared Jesus because he was so popular. And we'll see throughout the gospel that they, they made many attempts to try and trip him up, to try and trap him into saying something that they could use to discredit him among the people. And when that didn't work, when he shut their mouths time after time, they conspired against him, plotting his ruin and his death. Well, in the physical realm, just as in the spiritual realm, it is those who realize they are sick that seek out the doctor. And as I said, much of the attention that Jesus garnered during His early, earthly ministry was due to people understanding their physical needs. People were physically unwell, and they sought out anyone that might possibly be able to meet that need to fix what was broken. Whatever shape the earthly ministry of Jesus would end up taking, His earthly travels and His teaching and His healing were massively popular among the people. And as I said, the people came from all across the land to be able to bear witness themselves to that mighty teacher and healer. Even if these masses of people didn't stay faithful in the end, the overwhelming response gave evidence to the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. The people heard about, and then they went out to see something that was unlike anything that had ever been seen or heard before. See, it is really no wonder that after all these things had been fulfilled, after all the, the life and the ministry of Jesus, when Jesus sat enthroned at the right hand of His Father as He does so today, that many of these masses remembered the one that they came out to see and they believed. There's no wonder that thousands were being added to the number of the believers day after day. Well, we, we marvel at the success of the early church. We marvel to read those passages where it talks about the thousands that were coming to faith. And, and rightly so. It is a major work of God. It was a major work of God among His people. But we often forget the seeds that were sown through Jesus' earthly ministry years before as He walked among them, as He healed their sickness, as He spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And these people, when they heard how this Jesus had been raised from the dead, many believed it to be true because they had already witnessed His authority over death and sickness. So that even in the face of rejection by the nation of Israel, God was faithful to His people and He preserved for Himself a remnant. Because the King of Heaven... Christ, the Son of God, would be recognized and many would believe and be saved. But that harvest would be for a later day. At this point, it is enough that we realize just how widespread His fame and influence was among the masses. Well, let's look for a little while at the teaching ministry of Jesus during these travels. We saw earlier in this chapter that when Jesus began to speak, He continued the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, something that we tend to lose in the English translation of kingdom is the sense of reigning that naturally coincides and follows directly along with kingdom. To the Jewish audience in the first century Palestine, there was no sense of separation between kingdom and reign between kingdom and sovereignty. We might separ separate this, a geographical region of a, a, a nation or a kingdom from the authority of the one who rules, but that's a modern invention. In the biblical context, a kingdom only existed because of the king who exercised rule and dominion in the land. So in that context, to speak of a kingdom was to speak of the sovereignty of the king. So, to speak of the kingdom of heaven is to speak of the reign of heaven. 
the kingdom of God with Christ as her king, is the reign of Christ, the one whom all authority in heaven and earth was given to. Let's keep that in mind as we read the words of Christ, as we witness the actions of Christ, the miracles of Christ. He truly acted and spoke as the sovereign one over all of creation. His confidence was the confidence of the king who reigned over his land. Even if the multitudes did not yet understand what the arrival of the kingdom of heaven meant for them. Well, as to his methods, in the towns and villages that Christ visited, he would go to their synagogues and he would teach in their synagogues. In first century Palestine, the synagogue was the center of Jewish cultural identity, the center of Jewish life. A synagogue could be found anywhere that you had ten educated Jewish men. And it was common for prominent Jewish men to be asked to speak if they were traveling in another village, if they went to the synagogue of a neighboring village or a distant village or a city, they would be asked to speak as part of their worship. There's no wonder that Jesus would be found teaching in the synagogues as a man, when as a young child, he was found in the temple confounding the wisdom of the priests. As his fame grew, so would have been the local desire of these different synagogues to have him come, to have him expound on the word of God for them. Remember, the, the exposition of Scripture was a common piece of synagogue worship, just as it was modeled by Ezra in Nehemiah 8, where he both read from the word of God, but then gave the sense of the word of God, applied it to the people to make sure they would understand. Of course, Jesus not only taught in synagogues, but he also spoke to the crowds that gathered around him wherever he roams. It was not, not an unusual thing to see him on a hill surrounded by people or on the edge of a lake, again, surrounded by people. And it was there that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And remember, the gospel of the kingdom was good news. It was light to those who dwelled in darkness. Even when much would be demanded by this gospel message of Christ, the message was good news. The message was hope and salvation. This good news message called people to action. It did not leave them as they were before. It called them to hear the truth that was set out before them. It called them to respond accordingly to the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. The good news of the kingdom was that the Father had sent His Son to the earth to be Lord and Master over all things. Everything. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to the Son. So for these people going out to hear this teacher, they were hearing the good news of that the kingdom of God was at hand. That God had come to His people to reign. Well, Matthew gives us a number of examples throughout his gospel of what the teachings of Jesus looked like. Practically, nothing of what Jesus taught would be new other than showing the fulfillments that he brought to the law, that he, the way that he fulfilled the prophets and the teachings. Even so, the teachings of Jesus would be revolutionary. Jesus simply expounded on what the people already should have believed, on what the people already should have been doing. As we continue in Matthew's Gospel, we'll see that Jesus presented an ethical system that stood in contrast to the traditions of the Jewish leaders, the elders, scribes, and Pharisees. We'll see that things changed when the reign of Christ was established. Traditions were challenged. Often, Jesus said, you have heard this, but now I tell you this. We see that Jesus explained how God's people were meant to display God's character, to display God's glory, not to hide away in exclusion, and certainly not to allow themselves to be made just like the world around them. 
we'll see that Jesus showed how he came and perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Something that no man before him had ever been able to do. That he wasn't there to abolish it. He wasn't there to do away with it. He was there as its ultimate purpose and fulfillment. We'll see that Jesus broke down any pretense that men could make themselves righteous before God. And his harshest words would be geared towards those who were seen as the most righteous among them. In contrast to the traditional understanding of the law of God, where the people were taught that it only applied to their actions, Jesus would show that it extended also to the heart and to the intentions of man. God's standard was so much higher than the people had been led to believe. They couldn't reach their own levels of righteousness, their own level of standard, yet God's standard was higher. Yet even so, God provided a way where the people had no way. We will see that Jesus gave the people new ways to think about, to treat their enemies. And we'll see that Jesus would reshape the people's understanding of what the kingdom of heaven was and what it would look like. And so much more. His message was not what the people may have expected. And it was not always easy to hear or to accept. Even so, the message of Christ carried with it a sense of triumphant hope for the faithful. Because He came, He was the light of the life of men. The light of the Gospel that pierced into the darkness. And later on, when Jesus would move on from His ministry in Galilee and focus His attention on Jerusalem and Judea, later on we'll see that His tone and His emphasis shifted. It is there later on in the Gospel that we see His message increasingly shift from calling people to live in light of the kingdom toward the proclamations of judgment and destruction that were soon to follow. What marked His teaching throughout all of His earthly ministry was the authority in which it was given. The scribes and Pharisees argued one amongst each other, trying to come up with new, novel ways of, of how to interpret a text, how to show that they are wiser, they, they knew more, they could engage it and apply it to areas of life that no one had thought of before because they were so clever. Even the prophets of old, though they spoke the words of God, did not fully understand the message that they were given. Yes, they had the confidence of being able to say, thus says the Lord, because they knew they spoke the very oracles of God, yet their confidence was a derived confidence that didn't always contain with it knowledge. Yet with Jesus, there was a confidence in His message that had never been seen before. When He spoke, there was an authority that no man had ever carried before. Jesus had mastery over His message. This was not something foreign that was given to Him. He spoke of Himself as He was, He is the incarnate Word of God. In Christ, God spoke His own words to the people. In Christ, God was His own message to the people. So what is the significance of all the healings that Jesus performed? As we've seen, Jesus' travels included three different aspects. Teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing. And of these, as we said, healing seems to have been the main fuel, the main source of His fame and the attraction of the people to Him. People were coming to Jesus to, because they were desperate to be made well. They came to Him because they were diseased and no one else could do anything for them. They came to Jesus because they had nowhere else to go. The promise of healing was a powerful motivator for the masses of broken humanity in all the land. 
then even more so than today, disease and sickness were a way of life. It was all that the people understood. Conditions that we take for granted are easily addressed by medicine would have altered the course of someone's life. They could either permanently be scarred or disabled, or it might even kill them. Extended sickness was, was a constant threat to the loss of someone's livelihood, which would leave them destitute. Of course, the people were not without some medical wisdom and ability. They knew some things about the human body, and they could treat some things, probably more than we give them credit for. Yet they lived with an awareness of their mortality and the fragility of human life that we have largely forgotten. Death was something that they all knew and they all understood. When we read in our passage this morning, they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Well, the intention of this list is not so much to give us exact medical diagnosis, but it's to give us a general summary. Of course, it is of interest that Matthew lists demon possession separately from physical ailments. It is common for the modern skeptic, some of us here may have been guilty of this from time to time, it is common for them to accuse biblical authors of the superstitious ignorance of the era. Accuses them of superstitious ignorance when they attributed demon possession to those things that we think now we have a better understanding of. The things that we think now we understand to be biological or psychological. But even in this list from Matthew, it was understood that demon possession was something separate from biological causes like epilepsy or paralysis. Even though these illnesses might display in a way that's almost indistinguishable from how the Bible describes the effects of demon possession. Even today, there are yet many sicknesses of the mind that science still has no answer for. As much as we are told to trust the science, to, to follow the scientists, believe what is said by science, There's so much about the human mind, so much about frailty of the human mind and psychosis that that science still cannot address. And rather than fixing many disorders, modern medicine simply medicates the symptoms until the patient is no longer a problem. We have to realize and accept that the Bible addresses demon possession as a simple fact of life something that most people would have witnessed or been aware of. The modern skeptic might call Jesus a superstitious and ignorant man for believing in demon possession. Yet he was able to heal those who were afflicted by it. If the same person were treated today, they would no doubt be treated into a medical coma rather than admitting that there was a spiritual reason for the sickness rather than just a physical one. But we need not assume that this passage was meant to be an exhaustive statement about sickness, whether it's physical or mental. Yet when the Bible states something clearly, it is always trustworthy. There are many things to which the Bible does not directly address, but when it does directly address something, we can trust it. The spiritual world has a real and tangible effect on the physical. And beloved, I will plead with you, Do not allow Darwin and Freud to determine your understanding of the body and the mind. I would a thousand times over rather be called ignorant and superstitious for trusting my Savior, for trusting the author of life as he describes the maladies that are common to men under the curse than to trust the likes of men who have a hatred of our God and the very foundation of their premise is that God cannot exist. 
Not only did his words proclaim the good news of the reign of God, but Jesus' actions truly proved that God was reigning among his people. Matthew tells us that Jesus healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Well, this recalls prophecy in Isaiah 35, 4-6. And there we read, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompenses of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man be like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. See, Isaiah looked forward to that day when God would come in power to save His people. He said the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would run and leap like the deer, and the mute would shout for joy. God had promised that He would come and restore what sickness and disease because of the curse had inflicted and destroyed. As Jesus traveled and healed every sort of sickness in the land, He proved that the kingdom of heaven, the reign and the salvation of God was at hand. Beloved, we don't want to glaze over this reality. It is in fact the evidence that Jesus gives John's disciples when they come to Him and ask Him, Master, are you the one we are waiting for, or is there another? We read Matthew's, or Jesus' response to that in Matthew 11, 4-6. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When Jesus was asked, are you the one we're waiting for? He just said, open your eyes. Look what you see around you. Could it be anything else? Just think of the long list of miraculous healings that Matthew bears witness to in his gospel even though this is definitely not an exhaustive list. We see that lepers sought out Jesus and were healed. See, a Roman centurion's paralyzed and suffering servant was healed, even though Jesus was nowhere near him when he healed him. We see that Peter's mother-in-law, though she was sick with a fever in bed, was healed. We see many who were oppressed by demons, many who were sick, many who were ailing, were healed just with the word of Christ. We see two men possessed by many demons that were healed, and the, the horde of demons went into a flock or a herd of pigs. We see the daughter of a ruler who had died being brought back to life. See, blind men that were given their sight. A man who was mute because of demon possession was healed, and his voice returned to him. A man with a withered hand was restored. People came from all around just to touch the fringes of Jesus' garment. And anybody that just could reach out and touch his garment was healed. And we even see a Canaanite woman who would not take no for an answer, accepted that she was as a dog begging for scraps, and her demon-possessed daughter was healed. Matthew records time and again people who were lame, who were blind, who were crippled, who were mute, coming to Jesus and being healed. Well, just as the the larger teachings of Jesus that we find in the Gospel are representative of what He taught in His earthly ministry in Galilee, so too are these examples of miraculous healing. Beloved, in a very real and practical sense, Jesus abolished sickness from the land. People were brought to Him from all over, and He cured everyone. How does that not hearken to the words of Isaiah as proof of the reign of God on this earth? Jesus healed physical, psychological, and spiritual sickness. He didn't need to perform a ritual in order to heal. He didn't even need to fast or to stop and pray to heal. He didn't even need to touch somebody to be able to heal them or even be near them. There was nothing He did not have the power and authority to heal. 
There was no one who came to him who was not healed. We read of no one who was denied. Everywhere he went, he showed his power over the curse of sin and death. Falsehood could not stand against him. Sickness could not stand against him. And even death could not stand against him. The reign of God on this earth truly was at hand. Okay. So what was the deal with those people who followed Jesus during this time? Well, we do know that there were some from these crowds of people who did faithfully follow Jesus and remained with Him for the extent of His earthly ministry. When it came to replace Judas as one of the twelve, there were several people who had been present through the entire ministry. Yet, most of these people that came out to meet Jesus and, and followed Him for a time would soon leave and return to where they came from. The makeup of this crowd would have been constantly changing as people came and went. Jesus was continually followed by a mass of people that were eager to witness the wonder that was unfolding before their eyes, though most of those people would not stay for long. We wouldn't expect it to be any other way. People came to hear and to be healed. When they were made well and they had heard what Jesus had to say, they returned back to their home and to their lives. Some were changed for other. Others just wanted to join in the spectacle and see if they could cash in on the benefits that were able and that were there. The miracles of Jesus were the proof of his message. Yet being healed by Jesus, being physically made well, did not save anybody. It was possible for somebody to be physically healed, miraculously healed by Christ, and yet not understand anything about Him. Physical healing did not equal salvation. Nor did it guarantee that those who witnessed it would believe. We will see later on in the Gospel that Jesus would lament the lack of faith in Capernaum. Remember, that is His base of operation, essentially where He came out of his home and during this time, he would lament the lack of faith there, even though that city witnessed miracles that would have caused Sodom and Gomorrah to believe had they been witness. So it is not those who understood their physical sickness that were saved, but it was those who understood their spiritual brokenness and sickness. There were many people who pursued Jesus who do not find salvation in Him. Many people pursue Jesus because they've been taught that if they look to Him, they will have a better life now. That they will get what they want. They will achieve all their hopes and dreams. They will receive all they could want and more. Many pursue Jesus only because they're ultimately pursuing their own pleasures and they think Jesus is the greatest and best way of attaining it. But I tell you now, if your pursuit of Jesus is based on what you think you will gain from Him in this life for yourself, then you may want to take another look at what the Gospel proclaims. Jesus never promises that those who follow Him would live easier lives or that they would have health, success, or happiness in this life. In John 15-20, Jesus tells the disciples just how the world would treat them said, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And in John 16.33, he tells his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promised them, that they would face tribulations in this world. They would not have peace among men because Jesus took away all their troubles here. They would have peace with God because Jesus had overcome the world. He promised salvation from the wrath of God over sin. 
He promised an eternity with Him where we might be with Him and enjoy Him and worship Him forever. But if a man is only a little sick, it is not easy to persuade him of his need for a doctor. And if a man believes himself only to be a little spiritually sick, he will not be easily persuaded of his need of a Savior or his need to abandon all that he has in order to follow Christ. Mankind is sick and in desperate need of a Savior. It is only against the absolute vileness of our sickness that we will see the true beauty of Christ. It is the greatness of our need that makes the good news such good news. As Jesus roamed the earth, He time and again displayed His power over the effects of sin. Each time He healed the sick, each time He rebuked the forces of darkness and spoke clearly the words of God, Jesus proved that He had the power to overcome the curse of sin and death. All sickness and death in this world is a result of sin. Before there was sin, there was no disease, there was no deformity, and there was no death. Sin entered into this world by the failure of Adam. And the new Adam, Jesus, came to this earth to overturn that curse. Every time Jesus healed a sickness, He showed He was able to restore what Adam had destroyed in the curse. Every time that Jesus lifts the veil of sin, every time Jesus causes someone who is spiritually dead to have spiritual eyes to come alive and to believe, He once again shows His power over sin. Because Jesus has overcome this world of death and despair. As people who are aware of our spiritual sickness, let us look to the great physician of our souls, He has already overcome this world. He is overcoming this world. He will one day finally and completely overcome this world. He has defeated the curse of sin. And we have the hope that one day He will free all of His people from its corruption and that we will be made perfect. May we in that day in Him be found. In Him, and through Him, and for Him, for all eternity. Praise God for the hope that is before all of us who believe. All praise to God. Father, we thank You that Your Son did come, that You did send Him, that He did go about the land proclaiming the wonder of the Gospel of the Kingdom, and that He so wonderfully demonstrated His power over the curse. Those things that are broken by sin that He healed, repaired, He restored. Father, we pray that we might see that kind of work among us in this community. That people would be awakened to their spiritual need. And they would be so eager to hear the gospel that they might even cause a commotion on their way to come and see who Christ is. May we be found faithful to to present His Word, faithful to, to proclaim the Gospel, faithful to speak even hard things because Your Spirit moves according to Your Word. Your Word brings faith, faith, salvation in Your Son. 
Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we approach the Lord's table, let us consider the cost of Jesus' overturning the curse. His body was broken and His blood was shed so that we might be healed. Remember that the physical healing was but a witness to His power. It was a witness to His victory over death and the curse. The healing we most need and that which we are able to enjoy here and now is the healing of our souls that have been cut off from God by sin. If you have recognized your spiritual sickness, if you have found your spiritual healing in Christ, if you have embraced the healing power of the great physician of souls, then you are welcome at this table if you continue to follow and trust in His atoning work on your behalf. So if that is true for you today, and neither the Holy Spirit nor a local church have placed any constraints on your conscience, then I invite you to come up and receive of the elements representing the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. And once we have all received them and made our way back to our seats, we will partake of them together. So I invite you to come.